Well, this morning we're going to begin to turn our attention uh, towards a, a new book study. Uh, many of you asked me uh, in the last few weeks, the last few months, where we're going after we finish John. And we finished John, obviously, uh, late last fall, just before the Christmas break. And I told some of you that we're going to head towards the book of Hebrews. And I think Hebrews is going to be a very fine study for us. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to look at the preeminence of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as that really is the message of the book of Hebrews, the preeminence of Christ, the superiority of Christ, the superiority of Christ's person, uh, superiority of his work, and really the superiority of the Christian's walk of faith in Christ. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to show us that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's the, the great messenger, the best messenger, the greater messenger. He brings a greater message. He's the one who's superior to Moses, the one who's superior to, to Joshua, the one who's superior to Aaron and his priesthood. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to show us, again, the superiority of Christ over all, uh, the superiority of his priestly ministry, the superiority of his sacrifice over all the Old Testament sacrifices, the superiority of Christ and the covenant that he brings over the old covenant. So I think as we begin to study the book of Hebrews, it's going to be a great next step in this fellowship as we continue to grow on our knowledge, on our knowledge of Christ and our love for him and our intimacy with him. Uh, again, the book of Hebrews is going to exalt the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's going to encourage us to draw near to him. And the more we know him, the more we will love him. And the more we love him, the more dear he will be to us in our hearts and our lives. And then the better we will be uh, in serving him. So again, perhaps there's no other book in the New Testament that more uh, directly places the spotlight on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ than the, the book of Hebrews. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we are to be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the author says, Let us therefore draw near uh, with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in, uh, to help in our time of need. So there's nothing more valuable, I think, for us than a biblically informed personal knowledge of the person of Christ, uh, who he is and what he has done for us uh, on and through the cross. Uh, Paul puts it like this. He says in Philippians 3, 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So we all need a bigger and a greater vision of Christ. And, and really, uh, Paul says we should give up everything to attain that. Uh, to, to achieve that. One writer puts it like this. He says, let go of status and reputation, uh, worldly goods, earthly commerce, and everything else, uh, but know Jesus Christ. He says, he is everything. If you have Christ and lose everything else, you still have all you need for time and eternity. If you gain the whole world without Christ, you have nothing. That's a good statement, right? Jesus Christ is who we need and, and a greater vision of him. Now, when we come to the, the book of Hebrews, uh, the author is writing to uh, a group of Jewish individuals who are primarily converts to Christ. And I think that's really important for us to understand. Uh, there's no reference to Gentiles in the book. Uh, there's no problem between the Jews and the Gentiles mentioned in the book or anything on that kind of a line reflected on or addressed in the book. And, and so it's vitally important that we understand the audience up front. The congregation, the, the audience, is primarily, if not strictly, Jewish. And, and so this is a, a community or a congregation of Jewish believers, and most likely within that group there are some who are obviously not. They're uh, uh, believers, they're unbelievers. In fact, there's basically three different groups I think the book addresses, the author of the book addresses. Group one would be Hebrew Christians who are true believers in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have come out of Judaism, from which they have been born and raised. Uh, it had been revealed to them the merits of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant, the merits of the new covenant, and, and in contrast to the old covenant uh, under which they had so long lived and so long worshipped. And, and they've been born again, this group of people. They received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah and their Savior. But this group, or in this congregation, they're facing some impending threats, uh, some hostility and some persecution. So they're lacking a full confidence in the gospel. Therefore, some are, are being tempted to turn away from Christ and go back into Judaism. The, the second group that's being addressed here in the book of Hebrew are non-Christians. Uh, th those who have been intellectually convinced that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, yet they're unwilling to make a full commitment to him and 
by faith, right? They, 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 they're, they're in. We, we kind of, yeah, I get it. But, but they've not come all the way to Christ. Uh, intellectually, but not all in with, with their life. They're, they're really non-Christians. And, and then the third group, obviously, I think there's in this, in this congregation are, are Jewish individuals who are not Christians whatsoever. They're unbelievers. They're not convinced whatsoever concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as we get a little bit further into the study, I'm going to speak to this issue again, uh, these through three groups in, in a greater detail, but not this morning. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews knew that the only way for uh, the reader to uh, understand and to uh, uh, be firm, even to the point of death uh, in their life, is to have a firm, proper, biblical view of Jesus Christ and all of his glory. Uh, to understand that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament pointed towards. Uh, therefore, to stay focused on Christ and his, his person, that would give them the strength that they need to endure persecution and, again, to that, endure that persecution by faith. And, and, again, we all need a greater vision of Christ. And I really believe this book's going to give us that. Uh, this book's going to be a great adventure for us. It's going to take us a while to get through, obviously. A lot of material on a variety of different topics and themes. Uh, parts are going to be very challenging, I think, for us to work through and difficult uh, for us to consider on our way through. Many deep, uh, difficult truths to understand. But we'll just all along the way pray that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding of His Word as we study it together. And again, as we come through the study to see each time we study a greater picture, a greater vision uh, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, the book of Hebrews is primarily written to a Jewish audience. But, and therefore, in this book, there are many principles that obviously come out of the Old Testament and many principles that come out of the book of Leviticus. Uh, there are many principles in the book of Hebrews that are based on the principles of the law or the, or, or the Levitical priesthood. So I think it would be helpful for us to have a, to unlock the book of Hebrews if we just had a basic understanding of the book of Leviticus. So that's where we're going to start. If you read the title, it says Introduction to the Book of Hebrews, Overview of the Book of Leviticus. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back and just do a quick overview of the book of Leviticus to kind of set the stage before we go into the book of Hebrews. We're not going to do an extensive uh, uh, verse-by-verse study of the book of Leviticus, but just a very high-level flyover. And honestly, I'm thinking two or three weeks. Uh, that, that if we just understood a few principles that are found in that book, it might help us in our personal understanding uh, and our funda- foundational understanding of the book of Hebrews. So again, the book of Hebrews was written primarily to a Jewish audience. Uh, they'd grown up, in fact, Jewish individuals grew up, uh, children began their biblical studies on a proper, uh, biblical studies proper by, by uh, studying the book of Leviticus. So foundational was it into the uh, Jewish culture. So it's a foundational, fundamental book. So what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you turn back to Leviticus, okay, uh, chapter 1. And, and and I don't want you to get upset, but while we're looking at Leviticus, we're actually going to go back just in a moment to the book of Exodus. But just get back in that area, right, in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Uh, W.A. Criswell, who is the uh, now gone to be with the Lord, but who is the longtime uh, pastor, the uh, great longtime pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, uh, said this. He says, Leviticus is one of the most important books of the Old Testament. Without understanding the, uh, without understanding the principles of the atonement and holiness found in Leviticus, much of the New Testament has no foundation on which to rest. So, uh, 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 so to say that Leviticus is one of the most New Testament books in the Old Testament uh, would hardly be an exaggeration, for it foreshadows the person and work of Christ in a most remarkable and elucidating manner. That's a great statement, right? Leviticus is one of the most New Testament books in the Old Testament. Now, again, you go to Genesis, that's the book of beginnings, right, in in the Old Testament, Uh, obviously. uh, The book of beginning. Exodus, the second book in, is the book of redemption. It's God's story of rescuing his people out of uh, of bondage in Egypt. And, And then you go to the book of Leviticus, and that's really the book of holiness. It's the book of the atonement. In Genesis, man is ruined. In the book of Exodus, man is redeemed. In the book of Leviticus, man is cleansed and worships and serves God. Now, basically, the title of Leviticus, that title means matters of the Levites. And the Levites were the Old Testament priests uh, uh, of Israel. Uh, they assisted people in worship and instructed them how to live uh, holy lives. And, and Moses is the author of the book. He was, uh, as he was, the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the 
Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Again, Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book of the Old Testament. Exodus, the second book. And, and the title, Exodus, basically means going out. Going out. So again, it's primarily the story of Israel's departure from Egypt. And uh, uh, again, Exodus marks, again, the second book really marks the end of the period of the oppression of Abraham's descendants and the beginning of the fulfillment of the covenant promises that God had made with, made with Abram, as it's his name originally, Abram, Abram or Abraham, uh, and starting back in Genesis 12 uh, in that section. And then the promises were the promises of land, seed, and blessing. And of course, from Abram or Abraham comes Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob whose uh, name is later changed to uh, to Israel. So Exodus really traces the rapid growth of the nation of Israel from from Egypt to, to the establishment of the theocratic nation in the promised land. And all along the way, God gave the, the nation of Israel a body of legislation, laws that they needed to live properly before him uh, as a distinct people, distinct from all the other nations and people groups around them. So God, who's the self revealing God instructs the nation of Israel uh, concerning his sovereignty, his majesty, his goodness, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, the fact that he is the one and only, the, the true and the living God of both heaven and earth. Key doctrines in the book of Exodus uh, would include the covenant promises of God, the nature of God, the fact that he's glorious, good, gracious, long-suffering, merciful, powerful, provident, uh, uh, over providence. Uh, he's true, uh, unequaled, wise, but he's also wrathful. Uh, he, he brings judgment against sin. Uh, the Ten Commandments are given in the book of Exodus, etc., and so forth. So again, the nation of Egypt is leaving uh, uh, Egypt. Uh, the nation of Israel is leaving Egypt, and they leave by way of the uh, miraculous display of God's power. It starts with uh, the ten plagues that God brings against the nation of uh, Egypt, who had them in captivity. And really all those ten plagues are against uh, the false deities of the nation uh, of Egypt. And God brings redemption, right? Uh, the ten plagues, God brings the last uh, uh, plague, and, and redemption comes by way of the Passover uh, lamb. Uh, the nation of Israel miraculously crosses through the Red Sea, but then they get out there and they begin to grumble in the desert, right? So they sadly end up wandering in the desert for 40 years. At Exodus 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai where the law of God is given. The Ten Commandments is prescribed. Uh, that's in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And so what I want to do is just kind of jump in. I, I know I said we're going to Leviticus, but go back to, to, uh, to Exodus 19. And let me just kind of pick up the story here a little bit. Uh, so this is kind of towards the end. Uh, uh, Israel, again, is at the base of Mount Sinai. They're, they're preparing. What are they preparing for? Well, they're preparing for God to show up. They're preparing for a visitation from God. And, and when God shows up, it's going to be an absolutely frightful and terrifying event. Uh, Exodus 19, verse 9. And, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up onto the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So again, the, the issue here is that God is holy. Uh, no man can come near God and live. Uh, no man can see or meet the living holy God. And, and when God comes into man's presence, it is an absolutely terrifying event. Verse 13, no hand shall touch him, uh, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Uh, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments and said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a, a woman. Verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning that uh, there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and very loud trumpet sound. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. 
And Moses brought the people out of the, of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Verse 18, now the mount, now Mount Sinai was all of smoke, uh, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire, and the smoke descended, or smoke ascended like, uh, uh, and it smoke ascended, uh, like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and, and Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through at the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you have warned us, uh, saying, set boundaries upon the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron uh, with you. Do not let the priests uh, and, and, and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So again, when, when God shows up, uh, on the mountain and appears to the nation. I mean, displays himself in these miraculous, visible, physical uh, manifestations, power and majesty. It's demonstrating his awesomeness. It's demonstrating his his holiness. So, so therefore, the people aren't just trembling. The people are terrified, and rightly so. So the people hear the thunder, the the, the loud trumpet blast. They see the, the the lightning, the fire, the smoke, the darkness, and God commands them to stay at a distance. And he does that repeatedly. Again, as a reminder of the immensity of the distance, the immeasurable chasm uh, between human beings and the divine. Now, and I think that's something that far too many evangelicals today have completely lost sight of, completely forgotten. There's an improper in the church today. There's an improper understanding of the holiness of God. God's treated too far, far too far casually. Uh, there's little fear of the person of God by most. And that's a sad state of affairs. The Ten Commandments are given in uh, chapter 20, and that section runs uh, uh, all the way through to, uh, chapter 24, verse 18. The tabernacle is described starting in chapter 25 uh, through um, uh, chapter uh, 31. And then sadly, there's a, a defilement. There's a, a, a break in the relationship, God is a God. Worship of God is defiled. The golden calf incident that takes place in chapter thirty-two. God's anger burns greatly against the people, the nation of Israel, and God wants to destroy him until until God uh, until Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses comes down from the mountain to destroy the calf. Judgment is going to be meted out against those who rebelled against God because of the gross idolatry and immorality. In fact, just kind of fast forward a little bit, turn over to Exodus 32. Uh, just time, uh, we can't go through all of it, but we'll pick it up in Exodus 32, verse 25. Exodus 32, 25. <clears throat> now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control. Now, the question is, what exactly does that mean? If you have the King James, it says, when God saw their nakedness, so there's a lot of discussion. What's going on here? Some kind of uh, obviously lewdness, perhaps uh, a great evil, a great wickedness. It's not just idolatry, but it's idolatry with all these other things that kind of come with it. And, and so God is in, is incensed. He, he is uh, wrathfully angered. Went angered uh, when Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Verse 26, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every man of you shall put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 people fell that day. Just stop and think about that. There's nobody casually involved with God, with the true God. You're going to have to make a choice. Whoever is for me, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Every man put your sword on his side. Go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp. And kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men fell that day. So again, the major instigators of the 
plot of idolatry are put to death by the sword except for Aaron. God was so angry with Aaron that he wanted to kill him, but Moses intercedes for him. You can go in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20 and read of that. God has mercy and grace. He spares his life because of the intercession of Moses. Now the Levites who come to, to Moses and are standing with him for the Lord, they're now set apart for the Lord. And, and later they're going to be assigned the responsibility of carrying their tabernacle. Uh, you can read that in, in Numbers chapter 1. Verse 35 here in, in the chapter speaks about how many others who weren't slain by the sword, many others died by a plague that the Lord sent as punishment for what they did with a calf that uh, Aaron had made. So God is absolutely, utterly holy and he demands to be treated as such. Chapter 33, uh, the presence of uh, God confirmed. Chapter 34, the covenant uh, again is renewed. The Lord gives to Moses new stone tablets uh, that uh, Moses had uh, crashed to the ground. Uh, uh, again, uh, reestablishing the covenant with them. The tabernacle is, uh, 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 of God is constructed. The tabernacle is the tent, right? It's movable. It's a tent. That's chapters 35 through 40. And, and not only is the tabernacle constructed, chapters 35 through 40, all the furnishings are, are made, the garments for the high priest, etc., and so forth. And, and Exodus ends with these words in chapter 40. So turn to chapter 40 of the book of Exodus. Uh, verse 34. So after Moses had finished erecting the tabernacle according to God's command, probably about a year or so after the exodus from Egypt, Exodus 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up, over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. Verse uh, 38, for uh, throughout all their journeys, uh, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day and night. There was fire on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Uh, the Lord is fulfilling the promise that he made back in uh, chapter 29, verse 45. says, I will dwell among the, sa- the sons of Israel. I'll be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the, the land of Egypt, that I might dwell with them, uh, um, dwell among them. I'm the Lord, their God. So the, uh, the presence of the Lord is there at the tabernacle. Now, the very next verse in, in the text, after Exodus 40, verse 38, is Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, and then a variety of different instructions are given. So all of that sets up to get us to the beginning of the book here uh, of of Leviticus. Again, uh, the Mosaic authorship uh, of uh, Leviticus is, is affirmed. The divine inspiration of Leviticus is affirmed. It's attested to by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in, in the New Testament, and the book of Leviticus is referenced over 40 times in the New Testament. So that which flows from it in, in redemptive history and the revelation of God really is colored by everything that happens here in this book. And a knowledge of it, at least at some superficial level, I think would greatly contribute to an understanding, a comprehensive uh, understanding uh, of uh, the, the entire message of, uh, of the Bible as a whole. So what Leviticus teaches, what Leviticus establishes, is how sinful man can approach God. How, how sinful man can approach a holy God. How, how can the nation of Israel live uh, in fellowship with this holy God? And, and what does God demand by way of worship? Uh, because the issue is that God sets the parameters for worship, not men. Uh, again, contrary to popular modern opinion, we can't worship God any way we desire. We must worship God according to how he has revealed to men that how he can be approached. So the dominant theme here in the book of Leviticus is going to be God and his holiness. And that's why we stopped and kind of jumped in before with that. We went to the book of Exodus and saw the terror of the Lord as he comes to Mount Sinai. And again, God is absolutely, utterly holy and he must be treated as such. And men and women and again, the nation of Israel in the context must be taught the holiness of God. And when they come in contact with the true and the living God, they tremble. One commentator says this, Leviticus reveals to us, uh, reveals this, the holiness of God in three ways. First, in the sacrificial system, what's insisted that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. 
thus pressing, thus pressing on the most obtuse or dull of conscience the seriousness of sin. Secondly, the precepts of the law, which insisted that one uh, divinely revealed standard for character and conduct. And then third, the penalties attaching to the violations of the law, which sternly proclaimed the inflexibility of divine holiness. God is going to be treated as holy, period. God is going to be treated as holy. And God is going to be approached on his terms, not ours. So the dominant theme of the book of Leviticus is God's holiness. And that is a theme that is expressed, obviously, everywhere through the book of Hebrews. And all the Jews knew that. All the Jews in this congregation, all the Jews just in life, they knew that God is holy. And they knew that it is a dangerous thing to approach God. Uh, Exodus 33 verse 20 says, no man can see God and live. Now, again, as I just said a moment ago, sadly in our day, uh, there's an over-familiarity with the person of God, which is not biblical. And, and the more we uh, work our way through the text, the more we talk about this, and, and uh, the more we will talk about this issue of the holiness of God, and, and I'm going to address this issue, Lord willing, next week, and uh, try to come to an understanding based on what we do today and based on what we look at next week and the Lord willing the following week, uh, with the issue of the holiness of God is something that is so extreme that man cannot overcome that on his own. The, the holiness of God is such an issue, man can't overcome it on his own. So again, under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament system, not only could no man see God and live, no man could even approach him. No, no man could approach God, except one day a year. And that would be the Day of Atonement, or it's also called uh, Yom Kippur. And then the high priest had the ability to go into the Holy of Holies, and then he had to go in there, and then he had to get out as soon as possible under the terror of judgment. Again, this is almost like foreign language to us because we're so trivial with the person of God and his holiness. In the Christian culture, forget the world. You can only approach God one day a year. High priest goes in after he offers sacrifice for himself, goes in and gets out as soon as possible because it's such a dangerous thing to be in the presence of a holy God. So again, the major theme of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was there's no natural way for a person to come near to God. There's no natural way for a personal nearness to God. And it's only God who establishes the opportunity, the way to come near to him, and he does that by way of covenant. He does it by way of grace. He does it only by his sovereign initiative. He is the one who establishes the pattern. He is the one who establishes the way for the nation of Israel and all men to have a special relationship with him. Again, in the context for the nation of Israel to have a special relationship with him so that he would be their God and he, they would be uh, his people. They could have access to him if they obeyed. They would have access to him if they obeyed his word. If they sinned, that would interrupt their access. And since man was always, or man, all, all, uh, man in general and always, and the nation of Israel was always sinning, there was always an interruption in the fellowship. So those are kind of background issues just starting to get to the, the starting line here. There's a variety of ways to, to divide up the book of uh, uh, Leviticus, and men have done it over a variety of different fashions and ways. And I think for, for us, uh, I think two major uh, divisions would just be helpful to recognize because uh, we're not doing an in-depth study here. But just chapter 1 through 16 are the laws explaining to have, how to have personal access to God. The laws explaining chapters 1 through 16 just to have an explanation of how to have personal access to God. So that's what's in, in those chapters. And then you get chapters uh, 17 through 27 detail how to live spiritually acceptable lives, uh, to, how, to, how to live in holiness, how to, to walk of, a, of obedience. Now, within those two divisions, in that first division, you have the sacrificial system in, in the first seven chapters. And in the first seven chapters, there's five major sacrifices. There's the burn offerings, the grain offerings, excuse me, peace offerings, sin offerings, and then trespass offerings, or sometimes it's known as guilt offerings. And, and we're going to work our way very quickly in a high-level uh, way through those here just in a moment. So I'm, I'm just going to give you a little bit of overview of the book. In, in chapter 6 through 
uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 38, you have some regulations regarding the priesthood and the offerings uh, associated with them. Chapter 8 through 10, you have the beginning of the, the ministry of the priesthood. You have the ordination of Aaron and his sons. You have the first sacrifices. And then you have this tragic situation that happens in chapter 10, which is the execution of Nadab and Abihu. And I think we're, we'll get to that uh, next week, Lord willing. And then you have the laws of purification, that's chapters 15 through, or chapter 11 through 15, that deal with a variety of different situations of uncleanness. In chapter 16, you have a very important um, chapter. It's on the Day of Atonement, and we'll spend some time there. Uh, the Day of Atonement, I think, placed in a very prominent place in the book of Leviticus. It's kind of right there in the center. Uh, this is uh, the reason for the Levitical sacrificial system. Uh, the sacrificial system uh, teaches that sin requires atonement. And sin cannot be uh, covered by good works. Sin requires atonement. The wages of sin is death. And the price is too high for a man to pay. So again, through the book of Leviticus, death is going to be symbolized by the literal shedding of blood. Because again, of God's holiness. Again, there's two dominant themes in the book. There's sacrifice and then sanctification. How do you approach God and how do you live before a holy God? And then again, really, the Day of Atonement really speaks to the issue of the necessity of atonement. What does that look like? The ramifications of sin against which are death, and the only way for sin to be atoned for, again, is by death. Now, when you come to uh, the book of Leviticus, I think there's two. Uh, some people give one. I'm going to give you two. I think there's two key verses in, in the, the book of Leviticus, two uh, high contenders. One is Leviticus 17.11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So Leviticus 17.11. And and Leviticus 17.11 is uh, uh, echoed by the author of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. According to the law, one must say that all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So so Leviticus is going to set before us a graphic picture of the price of atonement. And it's, it's going to be the shedding of blood. It's going to be butchery. It's going to be slaughter. So Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The second contender, I think, for the key verse, so maybe we can have key verses. I have them in my notes. So we have two key verses. In the book of Leviticus, it would be Leviticus 19.2. Leviticus the second half says, you shall be holy for the Lord, I, uh, the Lord your God am holy. You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So again, because God is holy, he cannot just turn away from sin. Sin has to be punished. Sin cannot be overlooked. Sin cannot be ignored. God cannot do what men do regarding sin, say, that's no big deal. God can't do that. God's holiness and justice demands the price of sin be paid. Somebody has to pay that debt. Again, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 10.4 says, however, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So man stands in desperate need of a greater sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats. And man stands in desperate need with a sacrifice that can come and finally and fully deal with sin completely. Deal with the issue of sin. Now, again, there's much more we're going to say on, uh, on that issue as we go forward. Uh, but as we work our way from Leviticus into Hebrews, uh, again, Hebrews is really going to kind of illuminate some of the symbolism in the book of Leviticus. Now, back to the, to the overview, right? Chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Uh, chapter 17 through 24 in the book of Leviticus. Just a variety of different uh, covenant ordinances. Very practical guidelines on how to, how, how to deal with a variety of different issues of holiness things related to food, things related to sexual behavior, uh, dealing with your neighbor, capital punishment, grave crimes, religious feasts, uh, issues with the sacrifice, etc., and so forth. Chapter 25 of the book, you have the sabbatical year, and, and then the year of Jubilee, chapter uh, 26, you have the exhortation to obey the law with the covenant blessings, uh, uh, to obey the law with covenant, covenant uh, promises of blessings for obedience, curses for, for disobedience. And then chapter 27 kind of ends the book with vows and promises, dealing with the issue of vows and promises. So that's kind of a very high-level overview uh, of the book, a, a lot there, and, and I'm just kind of giving you a high-level flyover. So again, the issue is how can sinful man uh, interact with the Holy God? Again, Leviticus 17.11. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is blood, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. The only way that God can be approached by sinful men is through blood sacrifice. The only way that God can be approached by sinful men is through sacrificial offering. And again, the only way that God can be approached, the only way that sin can be atoned for is by way of death. Now Israel sinned continually. And because they sinned continually, that always interrupted their fellowship with God. But God graciously and sovereignly establishes a system of sacrifices that that are symbolically representing an inner repentance of the sinner. So that day in, day out, uh, fellowship with God can be kept. Uh, Again, God in his kindness uh, providing this symbolic uh, system of divine forgiveness that is mediated by a priest. However, the need for sacrifices never ended because the people and priests uh, continue to sin. So, so again, there's always a need for mankind to have a continual sacrifice, but what man really needs is a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice, a perfect priest, one who could actually atone for sin, one who could actually atone for sin one time for all, for all time, one who could actually remove sin, not just cover it over. Again, that's the picture, that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for this morning and the time we have left, all I want to do is is, uh, I want to just begin to look at the sacrifices. And what I want to do is help us establish within our mind's eye the idea of the high cost of reconciliation, the high cost of atonement. Again, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And again, bloodshed is just a very simple picture of life being poured out. And in four of the five uh, uh, sacrifices listed, they they involve blood, right? They they involve butchery, uh, slaughter, the high cost to deal with sin is, is great. It's labor-intensive. And to be honest with you, it involves the shedding of blood, and it's disgusting. Now, I'm just going to give a warning, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to be provocative. I'm not trying to be salacious. But I want you to have an understanding of, of what went on here in the Old Testament. The, the whole process is very intentionally, visually graphic. Again, to display the horrific wages of sin, which again is death. And that's what the shedding of blood looks like, right? So the Old, the Old Testament sacrificial system was bloody. And you have many people in the nation, probably somewhere around 2 million people in the nation. So sacrifices are going on all the time. The work was never over. And just to give you how a, a visual picture of how big uh, this sacrificial system and the idea of sacrifices were the sacrificial operation in the temple. Again, when we're in the book of Leviticus, we're in a tabernacle, we're still in the tent. But when, when Solomon dedicates the first temple uh, in 1 Kings 8, verse 62, it says this, Now the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. And Solomon offered for the sacrifice of the peace offering that which is offered to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the sons of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Now, that's a lot of livestock. It's a lot of oxen, a lot of sheep, and that's a lot of blood. Again, I'm not saying this to be provocative, not to elicit some kind of emotional response, but I think we just need to understand the whole process of of atonement for forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sin, the whole process is utterly repulsive. It's hideous by divine design. The wages of sin is death, and the penalty is inflexibly harsh. Because sin is such an abomination in the eyes of a holy God. Sin is such an abomination in the eyes of a holy and perfectly righteous God. So I did a little bit of research, and I thought, well, I... How much blood are we talking about? How how much blood does man have? How many pints of blood does man have? Now, the average human, as I read this week, the average human has somewhere between about 10 to 12 pints of blood. Since nobody deals with pints anymore, I thought I'd do a little bit of research, and so you got eight pints in a gallon. right? So that's 10 to 12 pints. It's about a gallon and a half of blood. Most animals, somewhere between three to five pints, so about a half gallon. Large cows, bulls have somewhere, researchers say, between 10 to 12 gallons of blood or more. Sheep have about two gallons. 
So if you just consider the amount of blood that was shed by the 22,000 oxen, the, the volume is staggering. And I don't know if anybody else's minds think like this, but I go, well, well what does that look like? So I'm not even going to include the sheep, but 22,000 times uh, 10, it's 220,000 gallons of blood. Your average backyard swimming pool, which is 12 foot across and about 4 foot deep, is about 3,400 gallons. So we're talking about 65 backyard summer swimming pools filled with blood just in this one sacrifice, just considering the oxen, not even looking at the sheep. Staggering. None of the blood that was shed was thrown away. It was all collected. It was all used and and splashed, uh, literally thrown around the altar. So everything's covered in blood. So just think about that. Just get the visual picture of the, all the work, all the logistics, all the sacrifices, all the blood, uh, the ashes from the animal that completely have to, that always have to be dealt with, uh, the whole thing cleaned up. The whole system is labor-intensive. It's nonstop hard work. And again, in the tabernacle, we're out here in the desert. We're not in air conditioning. It's hot. The stench has to be overwhelming. If you've ever been in a slaughterhouse or around animals that have been uh, butchered, you know what I'm talking about. Leviticus 1 is the first offering here in the list. It's the burnt offering. And again, I think as you just look at it, you're going to see that uh, with just a very little bit of imagination that our modern worship services are pretty dull and uh, tame compared to this one. Compared to the ancient worship services. Because these worshipers here in the book of Leviticus, they don't just come and sit and listen to the minister and sing a few songs. They're actively involved in the worship. Look at Leviticus 1 verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd, of, or, from the herd or the flock. So again, the herd would be bulls, right? Um, you know, bulls, they're most valuable in the ecosystem, if you will, of, of sacrificial animals. Somebody who had brought a bull would be somebody of means uh, financially. The average uh, worshiper would probably bring a sheep. They're not as expensive. And if you're very poor, then you just bring a bird. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it male without defect. He shall offer it in the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be acceptable before the Lord. So again, the animal has to be perfect. It has to be without defect. Signifying again the need of a perfect sacrifice. Obviously foreshadowing the person of Jesus Christ, the one who offers himself up without blemish to God, Hebrews 9.14. Uh, Hebrews 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Verse 4 in Leviticus. And he, that's the worshiper, he shall lay his hand, or say, lay the uh, lay his uh, hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So what happens is the, uh, the worshiper comes and he puts his hand on the head of the burnt offering, the bull, as a symbolic way of confessing sin and then symbolically transferring his sin to that animal. So it's a symbolic transfer of the, it's, a, it's an admission of sin, a symbolic transferring of sin from the worshiper to the animal indicating that the animal was now going to be the substitute for the offer. So the animal is going to die in place of the one who's presenting the, the offering. The, the animal is going to die in the place of the worshiper. And the animal is going to receive the death penalty because of the sin of the one who's offering it up. Verse 5, And he, it's again the offer of the worshiper, shall slay the young bull before the Lord. So, so again, the, 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 the worshiper is deeply involved in, in, in the worship service. Uh, he, the worshiper, has the responsibility to slaughter the animal, apparently by cutting its throat in a fashion that allows the blood to be collected in a basin. 
He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, uh, and Aaron's son, the Aaron's sons, the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar. Uh, that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now, if you have the ESV, it's a better translation. It says, "Throw the blood against the sides of the altar." The word in the NAS, sprinkle, is really uh, means to toss or throw, to scatter abundantly. Throw the blood against the side of the altar. That, that's a better picture. This is not sprinkling some Presbyterian baby with a little bit of water. This is throwing large quantities of blood against the side of the altar. Now again, bulls could have, I don't know, 10 gallons of blood or more. So again, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a small amount that's being thrown here. So again, the whole thing is visually disturbing. The blood is being literally thrown against the altar. The, again, the odor of death is everywhere from the blood sacrifice. Verse 6, he, again the worshiper, shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, or basically the fat, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Verse 9, its entrails, however, and its legs, uh, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to the Lord. So again, the whole thing is very visually graphic, again, intentionally so, designed by God to be repulsive, to be nauseating, because of the sinfulness of sin. And the whole thing is labor-intensive. The worshiper has to bring the animal. The worshiper has to slay the animal. The worshiper is going to be responsible for cutting the animal into pieces, skinning the animal, disemboweling the animal, washing the pieces, and and then handing the pieces to the priest who's going to put it on the altar with fire. And if you're going to consume uh, this sacrifice, you're going to have to have a lot of wood because this is an outdoor fire. This is not like something uh, contained in some kind of uh, cremation process. You're going to have to have a hot fire, a lot of wood, to burn all the meat and the bones uh, completely. And the blood is going to be collected. And the blood is only handled by the priest, indicating that the blood is the most holy element in the sacrifice. Again, collecting it uh, in the basin as the animal is dying. Verse 10. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or the goats for a burnt offering, now this is what the average middle class, if I can use that word, middle class Israeli or Jewish individual would offer, right? Can't afford a bull, so they'd bring a sheep or uh, uh, something from the flock. He shall offer it male without defect. Again, perfect sacrifice. Uh, and then he shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord and Aaron's son. The priest shall sprinkle. Again, it's really throw the blood around the altar. And again, smaller animals, perhaps about two gallons of blood. Verse 12, he shall cut it into pieces uh, with his head and suet, and the priest shall arrange them uh, on the wood which is on the fire, uh, uh, which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and it is to be burnt, uh, a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing, soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 14, uh, you have uh, somebody who's of lower income, uh, somebody who is poor. Uh, verse 14, but if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring the offering from a turtle dove or a young pigeon, uh, which are just pictures of harmless animals. Verse 15, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head. Now, if you grew up in the country or on a farm or with your grandma when you were a young kid and she said, we're having chicken for dinner, uh, you understand exactly the picture here. I remember that very well as a young boy. Grandma said, we're having chicken. She's not talking about uh, Kentucky Fried. <laughs> priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head. The priest shall bring, uh, uh, and offer, uh, bring off its head and offer it up and smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. Verse 16, he shall also take away the crop. Uh, the crop is basically part of the digestive system, the gullet. It's the place where birds, they eat seed and stuff like that. And so it's kind of a storing house uh, the, before it's digested. So it's like pre-digested food so the bird can digest it slowly. So basically it's just mess, a mess. With its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Verse 17, then he shall tear it by its wings but shall not sever it. So the birds aren't to be cut. They're literally ripped apart wing from wing. 
And the priest shall offer it up on the smoke and the altar and the wood which is on the fire and the burnt offering and the offering by fire is a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now the Old Testament commentator Wenham says, says this of the burnt offering. He says, The burnt offering was the commonest of all Old Testament sacrifices. Its main function was to atone for man's sin by propitiating God's wrath in the immolation of the animal. Most commonly a lamb, God's uh, judgment against human sin was symbolized in the animal as the animal suffered in man's place. The worshiper acknowledged his guilt and responsibility for the sins by pressing uh, his hand on the animal's head and confessing his sin. The, the lamb that was accepted was the ransom price for the guilty man and daily the daily use of sacrifices and the worship in the temple and their tabernacle was just a constant reminder of man's sinfulness and God's holiness. So this just goes on all the time because God's fixed in his holiness. Man is fixed in his sin. So sacrifices are always going on. Now the burnt offering was a voluntary offering, or meaning it was a, 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 something you wanted to do to, to, to get near to God, to propitiate for sin in general. Uh, again, it signifies, the burnt offering signifies dedication, consecration, devotion to God. Uh, again, it was known as the whole burnt offering. And everything is being offered up to God here on this sacrifice. And nobody keeps any of it. Uh, some writers would say perhaps the, the, the hide in, in this offering is kept for the, for the priest to sell and make money. At. But all of the meat, everything else is going up in the smoke. So the smoke is symbolically rising up to God as the offering. And, and again, many see it as a symbolism of the person of Christ. Uh, the Christ giving himself for us in total. Galatians 1.4, speaking of Christ, he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out, this, out of this present evil age according to the will of, our, our, of God our Father. Galatians 2 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by, the, by faith in, in the Son of God who loved me. Here it is and delivered himself up for me. Uh, Titus 2.13, God our Savior, uh, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, so uh, that he might redeem us from every uh, lawless deed. So it's a, it's a picture of Christ, complete devotion uh, of the person of Christ. And repeatedly through this sacrifice, you'll see the, uh, the burnt offering. It was offering of, by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord, or a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a sweet savor unto the Lord. Uh, you read that also in the New Testament as a reference to Christ. Ephesians 2, uh, 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, us uh, gave himself up for us, an offering, a sacrifice of God as a fragrant aroma. Right? Again, the writer, uh, Paul, borrowing from the Old Testament picture. So the soothing sacrifice of God, the fragrant aroma of a complete devotion uh, to the person of God through the sacrifice. The second offering was a grain offering. And it takes all of chapter 2 uh, to describe. It's the only one of these first five offerings that are bloodless. Leviticus 2, one, verse 1. Now anyone presents the grain offering as an offering to the Lord, uh, his offering shall be a fine, flyer, fine uh, flour. He shall pour uh, oil on it and put frankincense on it. Uh, he shall then bring it to the sons of Aaron, the priest, and they shall take from it a handful of fine flour of its oil and all its frankincense. The priest shall offer up in smoke I shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar and offering by fire and soothing aroma to the Lord. And the remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and the sons. uh, And the thing is most holy, the offering to the Lord by fire. Again, basically they're going to make these little cakes of fine flour, going to mix it with oil, unleavened uh, unleavened, uh, um, flour, and and sprinkle it with oil, sprinkle it with some salt, and make these little cakes, these grain offerings uh, uh, offered to the Lord. Uh, uh, dropping down to verse 10 just to kind of pick it up a bit. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron, the sons, and the whole thing is holy uh, offering to the Lord by fire. So all the way through the chapter, chapter 2, is just the grain offering. So the grain offering is also voluntary. Uh, another sweet savor offer to the Lord, sweet aroma. Uh, a grain offering accompanies the burnt offering often. It's a token of homage, a token of thanksgiving to God for his provision. And basically it's a ceremonial meal, making these little cakes, etc., and so forth. There, there's more instructions on it a little bit later on in chapter 6, dealing with the priest. We won't, we won't look there. 
Again, many would look at this uh, picture of the grain offering, this as uh, referring to the person of Christ, referring to his perfect humanity. Uh, It was always made, these little cakes were always made without leaven because leaven always typifies a sin uh, in the Old Testament. So without leaven, it talks about the sinlessness of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, And some see the oil that's mixed in uh, as perhaps emblematic of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't know, it could be just because they didn't have butter like we have today and they're trying to mix the whole thing together to make these little cakes. But there, there it is. Uh, some see the connection between the grain offering and the person of Christ and all the statements that we made that I am the bread of what? I'm the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. I'm the living bread. Uh, the, the bread of God that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Uh, bread of life. Uh, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So etc. and so forth. So perhaps a symbolic reference to the person of, of Christ as the living bread that is going to come. The third offering is the peace offering. Now we're back to blood sacrifices. And the peace offering represents or symbolizes our reconciliation with God. Uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace, right? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you go to Leviticus 3 verse 1 and it's the same thing. It's just more of the same thing. More slaughter, more shedding of blood. Again, all of it's a picture of Christ that, that is going to be sacrificed. The sacrifice has to be without blemish, without defect. More blood is thrown on the altar, and the worshiper himself is the one who slays the animal. Leviticus 3.1. Now, if his, offering of, uh, if his offering is a sacrifice, a peace offering, he is to go and offer it out of the herd, uh, whether male or female. He shall offer it without defect <clears throat> before the Lord, and he shall lay his hands on the head of the offering and slay it in the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle or throw the blood uh, around the altar. And from the sacrifice uh, of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering uh, by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and, uh, and the fat that is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver. He shall remove uh, the kidneys and the Aaron's son will put it on the smoke of the altar as a burnt offering, uh, which is on the wood uh, that is on fire and is an offering of fire, a soothing aroma of the Lord. So it just goes on chapter, uh, all over the end of the chapter, verse 17. So again, the set, more, more instructions are coming, sacrifices, instructions for sacrificing a lamb, uh, again, an unblemished lamb, more details, more slaughter, more blood, uh, the peace offering. So basically here it's the fat that is being offered back to God. Again, it's a vol- known as a voluntary offering, a sweet savor, savor uh, aroma to God presented by the offer as a way to express a desire for peace between the man and God, fellowship between the offer and God, again, foreshadowing the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring to men ultimately. The fourth offering is the sin offering. This one's compulsory. Uh, this one is not voluntary. It's mandatory. It's a non-sweet savor, non-sweet aroma. And the purpose is to atone for sin. Sin committed, listen, unknowingly. Sin committed unknowingly. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally, any of these things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them. If the anointed priest sins as to bring guilt on the people, let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect uh, uh, as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull into the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the bull. So I'll slay the bull before the Lord. Uh, the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, the fragrance of the incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out in the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is in the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it the fat of the bull uh, of the sin offering and the fat that covers the entrails and the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys, the fat is on them, which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove from the kidneys. And just as he removed it from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering and the priest is to offer them up and smoke on the altar and burn offerings. Right? I mean, this goes on, right? On and on. This is, this is for unintentional sin. It's a sin offering for unintentional sin. Say what? So what? Because there's no sacrifice for intentional sin. Again, how often do we think in our mind, it's okay if I do that because the blood of the Lord Jesus just covered it? There's no Old Testament sacrifice for intentional sin. It's only unintentional. God's holy. 
You know, it demands to be treated as such. Verse 11 says, The height of the bull, all its flesh and head, its legs, its entrails, its refuse, all the rest of the bull is going to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out. Burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned, etc. and so forth. Again, all the way down through verse 35. Repeated commands, more slaughter, more blood. Now the command is to take the rest. This is a sin offering. The command is to take the rest of the bull outside the camp. It's repeated twice more in chapter 4. Again, it's a picture of Christ who suffers outside the gate of the city. Hebrews 13, 11. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. But again, all these blood sacrifices, all these animal sacrifices can never take away sin. Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All all this sacrifice, all this blood of bulls and goats is only a symbolic stopgap. It's only going to be the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his one for all time sacrifice on the cross that can take away sin forever. And only for those who come to him by faith. So again, this sin offering is a mandatory offering. It's a picture of Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. It's a picture of him suffering outside the gates of, uh, of Jerusalem. Again, Hebrews ten eleven. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he having offered one sin, one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies made a foothold for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Speaking of the person of Jesus Christ. Perfect sacrifice, the greater sacrifice. Final sacrifice, it's in Leviticus 5. It's known as the trespass offering. Sometimes it's known as the guilt offering. Sin offering dealt with sin and guilt of accidental sin. The sin offering could uh, be made by the priest or, or, or for individuals or for the whole congregation. But the guilt offering is limited to individuals who are guilty and they confess that guilt. Leviticus 5.1, if a person sins after he hears the public adjuration to testify uh, when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, uh, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether carcass or an unclean beast or carcass of unclean cattle or carcass of unclean swarmy thing, uh, through it, the, though it is hidden from him, he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, whatever sort of uncleanness may be, which he has become unclean and hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to, to do good, whatever the matter, the man speaks thoughtlessly as an oath, and it is hidden from him, and he, he, then he comes to know it, he will be guilty of these things. For it shall be when he becomes guilty of one of these things that he shall confess it, that he has sinned. He should also bring the guilt offering of the Lord uh, for his sin, which is the, he's committed, uh, which he's committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, uh, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for sin. He can't afford a lamb, then he shall bring the Lord a guilt offering, that which is, uh, if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord his guilt offering for that which is sin, two turtle doves, two young pigeons, one for a sin offering, other for a burn offering. Shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer it uh, that which is uh, offer uh, first that which is for the sin offering, and shall nip its head in the front of its neck, and, and shall not sever it. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Again, this guilt offering, a non-sweet savor offering, mandatory to atone for sin. Your guilt before the Lord. Again, it's a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we sin, we trespass against God. We're guilty before him. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions or all our trespasses, having canceled it out, the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which are hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Boy, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. But God in his grace, God in his forgiveness, 
chooses to grant forgiveness, but it's at a high cost. An inflexibly high cost. It's always death. Again, the penalty is inflexibly harsh because sin is such an abomination before a holy and righteous God. There's nothing whatsoever beautiful in the sacrificial system. It's not meant to be. The whole thing is meant to be intentionally revolting. In sight, in sound, in smell. All the blood. The the sacrificial system was meant to offend our sensibilities. And again, intentionally so. Because the whole system is a reminder of the awfulness of sin and the high price for atonement to cause us to stop and consider the fact that sin is not easily forgivable. It cost the dear Lord Jesus Christ his life. Now, Lord willing, we'll continue in this kind of high-level overview of the book of Leviticus next week. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are in awe of the severity of sin. Again, just all of the all of the blood, all of the revolting pictures. The high cost of sin cannot be denied or overlooked. You are absolutely holy. And you will be treated as such. And sin is not easily forgivable. Help us to realize that. Help us to come away with a different picture of sin in general, but our own sin in particular. We might think rightly about it and realize the high cost that was paid to provide us access into your very presence. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.